This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Anna Funder, welcome back to Better Reading. Thank you so much, Cheryl. This is live. I don't know, have we, have we ever recorded a podcast live? I don't think so with you here. No. I don't think so. Yeah, there you go. Special. Anna is the author of Stasi Land and All That I Am, both international bestsellers, published in more than 24 countries, and the novella The Girl with the Dogs. Her books have won multiple literary awards, including the UK's Premier Award for Nonfiction, the Samuel Johnson Prize for Stasi Land, and Australia's most prestigious, the Miles Franklin, for her novel All That I Am. Originally trained as an international human rights lawyer, Anna is a former DAAD Fellow in Berlin, Australia Council Fellow and Rockefeller Foundation Fellow. Her latest novel, Wifedom, explores a breathtakingly intimate view of one of the most important literary marriages of the 20th century. Oh my goodness, what a story. What a story, I know. <laughs> um, can we talk about genre? Yeah, sure. You're always breaking the rules, oh. right? <laughs> don't you think? I really don't set out to break the rules. That's not the aim of the game. I feel like if I look back at the three kind of big books, I look and think, what is the story that wants to be told here? What is the story I'm trying to tell? And what's the best form to do it in? So with Stasiland, I would have preferred to write a novel first. You know, it would have been the sensible thing mm. to do in a writing mm. career. But it seemed to me that actually the four people who were the resistors to the Stasi, whose stories I was telling, they were still alive. Mm. And their stories weren't being told. And they were walking around Berlin and they could be running into their mm. former Stasi interrogator and so on. And I felt that to sort of appropriate those stories as material for a novel that would privilege my voice was kind of wrong. So then I flipped it and it had to be non-fiction. This one, Wifedom, I had the enormous good fortune of being able to use Eileen O'Shaughnessy's, um, so Orwell's first wife's letters to her best friend that were discovered in 2005. And I thought it would be fantastic to write a novel with these, just a straight novel. Mm. And it would have been a much simpler and I would probably have been sitting here talking to you a couple of years ago rather mm. than now. <laughs> but again, it seemed to me that her story was fantastic. I wanted to bring her back to life. But I also wanted to explore how it is that she's been forgotten. Mm. Why doesn't she appear in his work when she was there at the events that he's describing, say, in the Spanish Civil War? And what is it about having read all the biographies of Orwell, the six major ones, why does she seem such a shadowy, opaque, uh, almost like he's fond of her, the biographers are fond of her, but she's a kind of inconsequential figure when actually she was so central to his life and his work. So to 
to do to show the sly ways in which she's been hidden and to talk about how it is that women's work still today is hidden or assumed that we will do it without being asked or without being thanked, like a wife 80 years ago. I wanted to look at all of those issues and bring her story into the now. So this book is a mixture of looking at his life and their life together, looking at the biographies and saying how is it that they get rid of the main roles of women and why, and then bringing her back to life in the fiction. Mm. We spoke um, during COVID, we spoke via Zoom, and I spoke to many authors around that time. And a lot of the authors, I, I would ask the authors how their life has changed, you know, because most people have this uh, view that authors are, you know, at home anyway, up in the attic, you know, on their typewriter typing away, right? So my, my curiosity during COVID was how have things changed for writers, right? Because now we're all at home in the attic, you know, on Zoom. And a lot of the female writers, including yourself, said to me that it's harder because you're now working from home, as you have been, but you've got the children. You've A lot of people had homeschooling, depending on their children's age. You had to make the lunches and you were doing double the workload at home. And that wasn't just you who told me that. Many, many women or female writers told me that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really interesting, isn't it? So mm. COVID upset this um, disjunction between the public world and the private world where mm. we were all working at home. So in a way that public world was brought into the home mm-hmm. and people could see, like in that famous video where the kid comes into the man's doing a <laughs> CBC interview or television interview and his kid comes careening in on some kind of wheels. Yeah. But it was evident. My husband, Craig, he found this as well. He was saying that the women at his workplace were getting up at five o'clock in the morning Mm. to get their work done because then they were shouldering this double load Mm. of continuing to work from home in their professional capacity, Zooming and having meetings and organising and things, and then having this double load of doing the homeschooling, which seemed without really anybody talking about it very much to fall predominantly to the mothers for no good reason. The men Mm. are also doing exactly the same thing Mm. and working from home. So I guess that's a really good example, Cheryl, of how Mm. gender expectations result in a very unequal expectation of women doing much more work than Mm. men on Mm. the home front. Mm. So Eileen's story was not a surprise to me, you know. I mean, it's... It's not a surprise that it happened, right? And it's not a surprise that she wasn't mentioned. Um, you make uh, a reference here to to the connection of erasing or minimising uh, the role of women. And I thought about it because it was a book that I dipped into and out of, um, and that's just the way I like to read nonfiction. For, for some reason, I don't do it in a straight read, even though it's my preferred genre. But I thought a lot about about my life, about people's life around me. But also I thought about work and I thought about the, uh, and, and you'll know this, and I thought about how popular women's writers have become, right, and how really in the past 10 years we're starting to read more women's fiction. And I realised that what has happened, I think, and you'll have a view on this as well, is that in the past it was the newspapers that were the gatekeepers for review, right? And largely it was literary fiction or obscure fiction. 
and largely it was male reviewers. And so if you look at when social media came to be and women generally were, because, you know, on our Facebook page there, women are represented like 90% versus 10% men. They now have an opinion about what they're reading and they're reviewing in comments, right? And I think that that has has had a really positive, positive effect on publishing and what we're reading. Yes, that's so interesting. You've got a bird's eye view of Mm. that here, really, as you watch Mm. all the books being published and coming out. I know from just doing events with all my books that often the audiences are at least 50% and often more women. Mm. Women are just fantastic readers. Mm. Sometimes I think that because part of our role is this really important psychological and emotional work. It's it's the labour of life and love, keeping people sane and happy and going and anticipating needs of children, spouses, mm. houses, <laughs> uh, you know, parents, other relatives and so on. Reading fiction is something that nourishes that muscle that big heart muscle, because we're reading about other people's lives, we're immersing ourselves in what it is to be another person and what happened to them and how they responded to various emotional or Mm. other situations in their lives. So it's sort of no surprise that women want to read stories that explain what it is to be human to ourselves. Mm. You know, there's no reason why men wouldn't want to as well. And there's certainly no reason why they shouldn't. Uh, But I think that in life, we do a lot of that work, Mm. you know. Mm. And so fiction and literature of all kinds really feeds us and Mm. supports us Mm. to do that. Mm. It gives you another perspective on what the people around you might be experiencing, what they might need, what you might need. Mm. And I don't know, somehow I hope Wifedom fits into that too. You know? mm. uh, Trent Dalton um, said recently that he thinks that readers have tremendous empathy and I think there's a truth in that. Oh, absolutely. Sometimes mm. I meet people, I'm just starting now with Wifedom, the events mm. and things, but with my other books I've met people who, it's lovely, you know, behind a, a signing desk because you meet people mm. who have the most... Uh, emotional reaction to something, something that you have written has just hit them Mm. and made perhaps something visible to them about themselves or their world that they haven't looked at. Exactly. It's been articulated Mm. for them. And, you know, that's that's like hitting a bullseye. That's like such a Mm. privilege. When when I have that reading experience, I just I just love it. And then I love that people are kind of brave enough to come and See mm-hmm. me and mm-hmm. uh, talk to me about it. It's really lovely. Mm-hmm. So tell me about. So I mean, so you, you've you obviously um, you know have enjoyed reading Orwell, Animal Farm is you know I feel as though it was a, a a marking time for me. Do you know sometimes when you just remember where you are when you read that book? And I was in high school. Um, so tell me how this idea came about to write the book. Well, I. Um I found myself not far from here, uh, you'll be familiar with this place, mm. at a Broadway shopping centre behind a piled up trolley of um, mm-hmm. goods, as usual, kind of Groundhog Day. 
at the beginning of a school year where I had two teenagers going to starting at new schools, different schools, you know, a thousand emails, mm. um, my little boy in holiday care, a depressed French exchange student, an unwell relative I have to be kind of um, organising things for. It was just a motherload of wifedom, you know, mm. and a sensible person might, I don't know, take up yoga or something, but I turned to Orwell. So he's such a fantastic writer on power and who it mm. works on, on the sort of unseen mechanisms of it and what he calls the smelly little orthodoxies <laughs> of his time that were working on him. And I thought, I wonder what the smelly little orthodoxies working on me are that mean that, I don't know to what percentage, maybe 80% of the work of life and love in my partnership was falling to me at that time, or it felt like it anyway. And I had work to do, you know. I had mm. a screenplay to review for a film from one of my books. I had an essay to write. It was sort of deadlines ticking under everything. So I read my way through Orwell with great pleasure and then I read the biographies, the six major biographies of him. Had you been thinking about writing? No, no. I was really, this was like a, um, you know, a kind of um, warped and desperate self-help measure, I would say. Mm. And uh, after I had finished all of that, the kids were at school, uh, everything was kind of, sorted a couple of months later, I kept reading around and I found um, six letters from his first wife, Eileen, to her best friend from Oxford days. They were at Oxford together. That had only come to light in 2005, which was after all the biographies were written. And the first of these letters is written nearly six months after the wedding. Mm -hmm. And Eileen writes to Nora, Dear Nora, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to write to you, but... We have quarrelled so continuously and really bitterly that I thought I'd just write one letter to everyone once the murder or separation was accomplished. Mm. And I thought that was A, extremely funny, but B, I wondered what they were quarrelling about in these early days of marriage, mm. you know, as they're trying to sort out who does what for whom, who mm. does the work. They were living in this very primitive rural cottage. Who does the work that gifts the other time, you know, to write or to do whatever. And why does she want to kill him even in jest? Mm. So I turned back to the biographies and I went and I opened them up and I looked. She's a vague, pretty shadowy presence in the biographies. And I got to the part where they're newlyweds in this primitive cottage in the village of Wallington. And I read things like, uh, his friend said, these were the happiest months of his life. He had never been happier before or since. Um, the biographers wrote, conditions were idyllic for him. He got so much work done and so mm. on and so forth. So I thought, this woman is having to make the conditions which are idyllic for She's him. She's a maid. Well, and the biographers will use the passive voice to say conditions were idyllic, which in the instant that you write that, you are erasing the woman who is working extremely hard to make those conditions. And I think that that spoke to me as a woman working quite hard to make, uh, you know, like an utterly privileged perimenopausal inner urban mm. Australian woman. But this, we still live in a world in which um, everywhere on the planet in different ways and to different degrees, but still everywhere, women are doing a disproportionate amount of this unpaid labour and gifting the men the mm. time. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Did you, have you read any of um, Helen Garner's diaries? Yes, yes, I have. Yeah. Do you know, I was so, the latest one, I was so shocked that here she is, she's living with a writer. She's famous in her own right. She's a professional writer. And she is doing all the domestic chores for him, including having to leave the apartment so he could work for hours <laughs> on end. That made me want to throw the book against the wall. I know. It was sort of shocking. Wasn't it shocking? It was shocking. And you're quite right. Someone as um, extraordinary and self-possessed mm. as beautiful Helen Garner yeah. and such a beautiful writer. Because people have been asking me, Eileen was also a very beautiful writer and she had this extraordinary education and she'd mm. been ducks of school and got a scholarship to Oxford and was wry and funny and extremely insightful about people and had she studied under Tolkien she knew about the structure of story and she her friends said that she used to talk about other people as if they were characters in a book including Mm. herself and George and about animals including all the hens they had on the farm and she would name them and she wanted to write stories about them and you can tell where this mm. story is going. Mm. Um, but people have been asking me, somebody who is so clever and so self-possessed, so we think of Helen or think of perhaps Eileen, mm. why do they stay? Why do they do these things? I think, why do I? Why do we all? Because, um, you know, Helen didn't leave. He left. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, I think that there... One of the things that I think about that is that... Um, in order to be a good woman in mm. the world that we live in, so in patriarchy, you really, or a decent woman or a good mum or so on, that, those phrases mm. involve doing the work of life and love. Mm. So they involve caring for others. Mm. But you can be a decent man, you can imagine yourself to be a decent man and you can be seen as a decent man without caring for anyone. Mm. And I think that that disjunct is one of the ideas that underlies wifedom. Mm-hmm. You know, I um, that point specifically, and I've been thinking about that a lot lately, is when I read a book about a single parent, if it's a single dad, it's usually an adventure. It's magical. It's the experience that the child is getting is out of this world because the dad's showing him, you know, underground railways, whatever. It's all beautiful. When you read fiction that's written about a single mum, 
it's the work, it's the earning the money, it's the hardship, it's getting that child to school, it's working in the morning and working at night. It's a totally different perspective. That's so interesting. Are the books about the single fathers written by single fathers? They're written by men, but I don't know if they're single fathers. Yes, yes. My husband has been joking about my book saying things like, among other things, he's things like, uh, well, you couldn't have written this book without me, which is hilarious. But he, and also true uh, in so many ways. But he has also been um, saying things to me like, well, you know, not that much has changed. The men who worked all week used to then go golfing to mm-hmm. avoid the parenting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, now most women work as well, and they're not ever off saying, I'm off golfing on a Sunday, all of Sunday with my friends. And he says, well, maybe uh, what's happened is we've moved from golfing to cycling and now they're all in Lycra. Mm. So, I mean, or the gym. Or, or the gym. gym. So you've got to love the idea of a man taking his kids off on adventures, you know, and I do absolutely love that. But I suppose, as you say, that sits side by side with stories mm. of what it takes to keep everybody going and happy and sane mm. and... Mm fed and Mm -hmm. loved. But the women's stories are about, you know, the caring and the nurturing and the men's stories are about the adventure and the magic and, you know, it's just, it it is so ingrained in everything we do, isn't it? I think it is. I think it may be shifting. Mm. It may be shifting. I mean, um, so Me Too has shifted a lot of things Mm. and made visible what we all knew was going Mm. on as women, which was that we were, you know, catcalled and assaulted from Mm. the ages of about 12 to 40, really, Mm. on streets and workplaces Mm. everywhere. I was catcalled just the other day in a restaurant. Wow, that's just terrible. Yeah, dreadful, dreadful. And I I was just like, who does that now? I wanted to go up and say to him, listen, it's 2023. We don't do that anymore. Men don't do that anymore. Yeah, anyway, there you go. That happened. Wow, I was gonna, I was gonna sort of hopefully speak about how that's behind us, but it's obviously not. But there is a lot more vocabulary to talk about these things. Mm. Um, So you know, I find my my daughters who are young women now talking about mansplaining and things like that, obviously, Mm. and their boyfriends as well. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's a a vocabulary that we didn't have. Mm. Whether any of this translates into better outcomes in workplaces. and better outcomes in the courts is unknown, but it is changing. Yeah. Are you, um, I mean, I'm sure um, you do, but an awareness of role modelling for your girls, do you feel that quite strongly? Um, I was always confused. Um, my daughters are uh, 21, 18, and my son is 14. I was always puzzled. I have enjoyed nothing more in my entire life than than being their mother. And I was always puzzled at the beginning when they were babies, when people would say, talk about being a good mother. Mm-hmm. And then also people would talk about being a good enough mother in a Winnicott mm-hmm. sense and so on. And I used to always just wonder, how can you be a better mother than you are a person? I mean, it's just you. Mm. So eventually they're going to be stuck with just you. And in terms of the work or the attention or the time, I suppose that what that's what that's meant with being mm. a good mother. But basically, I am just what I am. I can't model, I can't live differently from how I live. I can't model something that I'm not. So they're really, they're just sort of stuck with me, I'm afraid. <laughs> that's right. Okay, okay. So 
I want to know, so when did you start thinking that this is going to be a book and you're going to put pen to paper, so to speak? Um, Well, when I read that first letter from Eileen, Mm. I thought... This woman has a fantastic voice. She is seeing so much in that very first letter. So she's telling Nora, she's minimising it in a way Mm. by making it a joke, but she's telling her there's something going on here. She says at the end of that letter, Nora lives in Bristol, so that's some way away. I have tried to come and see you twice, but when I get notice of the fact, uh, when Eric, so George, uh, or well, his real name was Eric, When George gets notice of the fact, um, he falls ill so that I have to come home. And when he doesn't know that I'm going, he falls ill after I've left and I have to come home. Mm. So Orwell suffered from tuberculosis most of his life. He was ill and they knew that his time on the planet was not going to be super long. But she's telling her friend there that he is using this disease to manipulate me and Mm. to keep me at home. So she's sending her even in a light-hearted kind of way, a serious message about control. Mm. And the thing for me that is so interesting is that Orwell is really a lodestar for me in the way that he can write about tyranny and control and systems of surveillance, things that I have been interested in my work as mm. well, and come up with a concept like double think. And I can apply that concept, which is where you think one thing, two things, contradictory things in your mind, So you can think I am a decent man and yet go and work for a racist empire Mm. Uh, and you can only do that by thinking that the people who have a different colour skin are not as equal as you, you know. Mm. And when you live in a marriage which is so unequal, you, like theirs was and like many still are, in order to think that you're a decent man, you have to think that women have fewer rights than you. So... As I, I know that you know, if you've read the book, that they, they worked on that book together, Animal Farm, every night mm. during the Blitz for three months that it took to write. And I can well imagine her saying, well, some animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. So it's kind of using an insight of his to bring to bear on a life together. And mm. I can bring that to bear on today, women's lives today. Mm. And so when you started writing, which you might get cross at me for saying this, but when you started writing, it really came together quite quickly because you usually take a longer time, don't you, in terms of writing? No, I don't think I'm so not cross at all. I have been very (laughs) um, kind of ashamed at how long this book took me. This book took six years. Oh, was it six yes, years? Yes, and it took... Um, so when COVID, you were still working on it during COVID? Oh, yes. I started in 2017. Mm-hmm. So in 2017, mm-hmm. I had my midlife meltdown yeah. and um, <laughs> turned to Orwell, read my way through. And then I had the great good fortune to go on a tour with Orwell's son, the son he and Eileen adopted in 1944. Mm on a tour of the um, trenches in Catalonia where Orwell had fought. So Orwell's son, Richard mm. Blair, and the son of Orwell's commander in Spain, George Cop, a man called Quentin Cop, 
run the Orwell Society. So a group of about, and they took a group of about a dozen of us on this fantastic trip in spring, European spring of 2017. A beautiful country. Around, mm. yeah. And so we were able to go into all these dugouts mm. and trenches and to wow. the places where he'd been, you know, besieging Huescar and all these villages in Spain. And that was fantastic. It was such a privilege to be with Orwell's son on that mm. trip. And then I went to Jura, um, which is this island off the west coast of Scotland where he wrote 1984 at the end of his life, this really remote place. He rented a, a house there and I, uh, the family that still owned that house owned it and he rented it from them and they let me in and I ended up kind of drinking whiskey with the grandson of the woman who rented it to Orwell, which was lovely, and walking around Jura. And I went into the archives in London and found there quite a lot of stuff that the biographers had just left out mm. of their biographies in order to make this picture of the decent everyman underdog that we know of Orwell, mm. which when you look at the full picture is is not the case and it's much more complex. Mm. And do you know when you're doing that research what it is you're writing? Do you know, I know you know that you're writing a story, but do you know that is it going to be a biography? Is it going to be an essay? Are you going to fictionalise it? So when you're doing that research early on, do you know where it's going? No, I don't know. I keep a really very open mind about it. Right. Because as I was alluding to before, I really... If something grabs me, some topic mm. grabs me or some person grabs me, sometimes you don't know exactly why it does mm. and you certainly don't know where it's going to lead. But that sense of excitement of this topic or this person or this period or this situation, this applies to fiction and non-fiction writing, is really making me feel some electric kind of charge, that's what you have to follow mm. because you can't spend however many years it's going to be writing something that doesn't have that charge and if it loses it, I think you couldn't keep going or the writing would suffer. But perhaps it's a complete failure of self-knowledge <laughs> but you don't know exactly why that is, why that thing is speaking to you or that person or that situation. You know, now in retrospect I can see the situation that I was mm. in and I can see that I was part envious of Orwell's conditions of production. Who wouldn't want a wife who did everything mm. for you and who was brilliant and who could mm. help you in this way, to say nothing against my very lovely husband. Um, but the situation is different. And who, but also then looking at her circumstances and her life mm. and her great promise that was not fulfilled and her self-sacrifice mm. um, that gave me a frisson of horror. You know, I really think that self-sacrifice is a feminine or, and self-effacement is a feminine virtue in mm -hmm. patriarchy, perhaps mm -hmm. particularly in the Anglosphere, I don't know, but it's a feminine virtue, but eventually it realises itself mm -hmm. and it looks like a crime. So just to go to your, your thing, I, I certainly wouldn't have set out to write a biography um, and this is being billed as a sort of, sort of quasi biography among other things because I'm not really qualified to do it and I think I would have been overwhelmed um, and it wouldn't have held my interest. Yeah. I think the moment when it really, really got going for me and I remember where I was, I was sitting in the downstairs part of a friend's beach house on the south coast just thinking, where is this going? Where is the sort of golden thread of excitement and it was in the letters and I just started writing the scene where 
They are in Spain. Eileen, he's off in the trenches. Eileen has a political job in Spain, writing propaganda and running supply and communications at headquarters for the political party that Orwell is fighting for, none of which you would really know reading either Homage to Catalonia or the biographies. But she's in her room and she knows that Stalinist agents are going to come and raid it and possibly arrest her and possibly kill her because that's what's going on at the end of this failed revolution in Spain. And she she has the foresight to make Orwell's manuscript of Homage to Catalonia safe by giving it to someone to take away and to put under her mattress the checkbook and passports so that she will be able to get them out of Spain. Six uniformed men, Spanish police under Stalinist control, come into the room and search it for two hours. She stays on that bed. She has some kind of unbelievable charm Mm. that this doesn't go awry, that she doesn't get taken, that they don't kick her out of bed, that this goes peacefully. They go through everything, every book, every piece of clothing, the curtains, under the bath, they look for everything. And she stays in that bed the whole time on those documents that's going, that are going to save them. And I thought, I know that that happened because Orwell does write that in Homage to Catalonia in a tiny paragraph. He actually mentions it twice. And I just thought, what was that like for her? Mm. I can bring that back to life. And mm. then I started writing the fictional scenes. Mm. So much. So much tension. So the book is part biography, part personal essay, part literary analysis and part fiction. It's wonderful. I really like how you keep breaking the rules there, Anna Funder. Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.